Welcome to the What's What Weekly Wrap-Up. It's Friday, November 4th. Today's podcast focused exclusively on this week's features from the WFUV Newsroom. I'm David Escobar. And I'm Shana Walsh. This week, WFUV's Christina Lulich sat down with Fordham professor and economist Janice Berry to talk about the true cost of living bill on the ballot in New York City. So today we will be talking about the true cost of living bill, which will be on the November ballot for New Yorkers. So Janice, tell me more about this amendment. It's uh, a proposed amendment that would create a more accurate measure of the city's cost of living, and it would be used to supplement the antiquated federal poverty measure and the city's current metric, which fails to account for public assistance. Of course, what's interesting about this measurement, which would look at the cost of meeting essential needs, including but not limited to housing, childcare, child and dependent expenses, food, transportation, healthcare, clothing, general hygiene products, cleaning products, household items, telephone and internet service, is that it would be very interesting (laughs) to uh, look at this data uh, across the city of New York. There will be so much wide variation in the cost of living in New York, depending on, of course, people's income class. So it will give the city officials a lot of information. How can this bill affect poverty in New York City if people vote yes? Keep in mind that on the ballot initiative, it states clearly that there is no application of this index to eligibility criteria after it is created. It merely says that by measuring the true cost of living, this is a necessary first step towards economic justice. It must be the case that the Committee for Racial Justice believes that there are costs included in the description of the ballot initiative, which have been left out of certainly the official poverty measure, certainly the supplemental poverty measure, and even the New York City poverty measure. So my position on this is yes, people should vote for it. It is an attempt, I believe, to be more inclusive as a first step of the true costs of living in New York City, which apparently uh, the committee believes are not accurately captured. What do you think we can expect in the future if city officials start using this metric? I like that it's a very clean measure in limiting itself only to looking at costs. But what would I say its impact could be if successfully constructed? Well, you know, the chain here is fairly hierarchical and you would have to get a buy-in 
uh, from not only the state of New York, uh, but the federal government to change some of the eligibility laws based on the development of this new metric. And I think that's a pretty tall order. That was WFUV's Christina Lulich talking to Janice Berry about the true cost of living ballot measure that New Yorkers will vote on in the upcoming midterm election. New York City has become home to over 17,000 asylum seekers over the past six months. The city's shelter network is now struggling to provide food for them. Tacombi, a Mexican restaurant in New York, has a mission to fight food insecurity in Latinx communities. WFUV's Maya Sargent talked to their charitable arm, the Tacombi Foundation, about their current work assisting asylum seekers. That's the sound of tortillas on the flat top in the Midtown Tacombi kitchen. Danielle Guzman, the managing partner for the Tacombi restaurant, tells me what's being prepared. We do taco plato, so it's essentially a plate which comes with tortillas, rice, beans, chicken and veggies, but it's a little more substantial than just a cup of tacos. But this food isn't being prepared for customers. Every Tuesday, the restaurant uses its kitchen to cook up food for Tacombi's philanthropic arm, the Tacombi Foundation. One of the foundation's programs is called the Tacombi Community Kitchen. This initiative delivers over 6,000 meals a week to fight food insecurity in Latinx communities. Susana Camarena, Senior Director of Impact and Culture, told me right now, many of those meals are going to asylum seekers. They know that they will feel their bellies, but also a little bit of their souls as well. Sometimes these meals are delivered warm directly to shelters, or they are stored in community fridges. We deliver around 400 meals every week to that center. So people can just come, grab and go without questions asked. These meals are also distributed to over 20 community-based organizations, like New Immigrant Community Empowerment, known as NICE, in Jackson Heights, Queens. Deputy Director of NICE, Diana Moreno, says whilst the influx of asylum seekers has strained their supply, they already practiced for this during the pandemic. We really learned what it means to be community responsive, to offer aid in a culturally sensitive manner. So we learned these skills through the pandemic and unfortunately we have had to use them again through the recent crisis. And it takes a huge community effort to distribute these meals. From the workers at Tacombi to coordinators at NICE and volunteers. Diana highlighted the important role these volunteers play. Who every week they do the service, they give up their time to ensure everyone gets fed. Sometimes they themselves are food insecure. Diana says NICE are grateful that organizations like Tacombi are so willing to get involved with the work that they do. We appreciate even the simple gestures of receiving packets of food with messages on them from the workers who made them. We value the labor of the workers who make the food we distribute because we know how hard that job is. Since their opening, the Tacombi Foundation has distributed nearly 300,000 meals to date to organizations just like NICE. Susanna, Senior Director of Impact and Culture, says the foundation hopes to move beyond just providing meals as she shares their end goal. We're also trying to get connected with the organizations that are helping them, like lawyers and social services. So when they get their work permit, we can offer job opportunities. With this development in mind, the Tacombi Foundation says they hope to provide their recipients with not only food, 
but a future career path as well. That was WFUV's Maya Sargent talking about the Tacombe Foundation's effort to combat food insecurity. There's only 24 lesbian bars left in the country today. Filmmakers Erica Rose and Alina Street wanted to preserve and protect those remaining safe spaces for the queer community. Part of that initiative includes a lesbian bar project, a three-part documentary series highlighting these bars. WFUV's Megan Oftermat talked to the two co-creators and co-directors about the new show. In the 1980s, there were hundreds of lesbian bars around the country. That number has plummeted, leaving just 24 lesbian bars across the 50 states. One of those bars, Henrietta Hudson, is in Manhattan and featured in the new documentary series, The Lesbian Bar Project. In terms of the impact of the queer community, I think it's telling the stories of the queer community in New York City, especially within our Henrietta Hudson episode. That's Erica Rose, co-creator and director of The Lesbian Bar Project. She told me that the owner of Henrietta Hudson, Lisa Canestrasi, was the perfect person to talk to for this series. With Lisa, Henrietta is in Manhattan, and she is a witness to queer history by, you know, the fact that she's been an owner for the past 31 years. And it isn't just about Henrietta Hudson as a standalone establishment. Part of the specific draw of this bar is that it calls New York City home. Because, uh, you know, New York and Manhattan has been such an enclave for queer culture for decades, not to say that there still isn't adversity and there still isn't disenfranchisement. Erica's co-creator and fellow director, Alina Street, says that part of that disenfranchisement directly impacts women and lesbian bars. Women don't necessarily have as much money as men to go and spend on alcohol. Women are mothers and they may have to spend more time with their families versus going out all the time. Yeah, that means I'm going to be giving less money to the bar. So I'm going to be, you know, participating less in the business in that way. Income disparity, gender inequality, and lack of representation are all contributing to the disappearance of lesbian bars. But Leah Delaria, executive producer and host of the series, wants to make it clear. We've been telling you for the past two years now that there aren't many lesbian bars left in the U.S. But this isn't a sob story. And it isn't a sob story. The remaining 24 bars, Henrietta Hudson in particular, provide an essential service for the queer community. With New York, I think that because we have become such a safe space for many different types of queer people, the conversation that's happening in Henrietta Hudson is different than the conversation with the bars that are in Oklahoma or Texas or other parts of the country. That conversation in New York is largely about making these spaces available to everyone, especially those who may not have been welcomed in the past. I think that now we can talk about what full inclusivity really means. Making safe spaces for non-binary people, making safe spaces for trans people, making safe spaces for all people of color. Now that these spaces are finally accessible to all, Erica and Alina say it's essential to protect them. We do need spaces and we are social beings and we're meant to be in rooms where we can spontaneously encounter people and meet people who will change our lives. You can watch The Lesbian Bar Project now on the Roku channel for free. 
That was WFUV's Megan Oftermat talking to the co-creators and directors of the Lesbian Bar Project. And that's it from us. But you can check out the What's What weekly wrap-up every Friday for more features exclusively from the WFUV newsroom. And make sure to check out the WFUV What's What daily podcast. It explores current events, culture news, and hot topic issues surrounding the New York metropolitan area. And it includes features and interviews just like the ones you heard exclusively from FUV. You can catch new episodes every weekday at 3. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or find out more at WFUVnews.org. I'm Shana Walsh. And I'm David Escobar.